Our scripture reading will be John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. And then um, before we read and we get to our teaching this morning, let us, uh, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we, uh, that we could come now to hear your word and hear what your scripture would have to say to us. Um, again, we thank you for your son, Jesus and his, his righteous life and his, um, his death and his resurrection for us. Um, but we thank you also for the accounts of his life on earth and his interactions with various persons. And what, that, um, what has been written down for us is also for our instruction. And so um, as, we, as we turn to your word to hear what your word has to say to us, we, we pray that you... Um, you give us the proper illumination by your spirit um, that what we're going to, to read and uh, unpack here will, will penetrate into our hearts and will change us. And, uh, and so we ask that you would do that. Uh, we do want to lift before you all of these prayer requests, uh, the various things that we had mentioned, and Jay and Luna and, uh, and for Vicki in the upcoming surgery. And uh, praise for, um, for Debbie's mom and sister's safe return and their wonderful trip there. And we want to pray for Rachel that you give her a very speedy recovery uh, from her illness. And uh, we lift all of these, these prayer requests up to you. And now we ask you to speak, speak to us through, through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Scripture reading will be John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Gospel of John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, Samar a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Here we have before us this in, uh, very well-known and famous encounter in John's gospel of uh, Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. And this is not just a woman. This is, as we saw, a Samaritan. In contrast with Jesus' previous individual encounter, in chapter 3, we saw Jesus' encounter with uh, Nicodemus. And you remember Nicodemus was uh, a man of the Pharisees. He was a part of the religious leading council. He was a leader and teacher over the people of Israel. And here in chapter 4, you have almost the polar opposite. Another individual encounter, an individual conversation with Jesus, but, almost, but one at probably the opposite end of the, the spectrum. In chapter 3, it was a man named Nicodemus. In chapter 4, it's a woman who's unnamed. Nicodemus was a man. Here is a woman. Nicodemus was a Jew. Here we have a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a man of high standing. And given some hints in this passage, we see that the woman was probably of low standing. Nicodemus was a Pharisee from the Sanhedrin. This woman uh, had a very questionable uh, and immoral life. But here we have before us a couple of very important lessons about the identity of who Jesus is in his interactions. As we just saw, as we saw with Jesus's interaction with Nicodemus, we understood a little bit more about who Jesus was and the nature of his salvation. Here we also understand about who Jesus is and also the nature of salvation. So let's begin with the background and the setting. And we see this in verses one through six. Um, Jesus had been, had learned that his, Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had learned that Jesus's ministry was growing. 
And so um, he decides to head north from the Judean area, the Judean wilderness, where he was by the Dead Sea, by the uh, Jordan River, and was doing baptisms down there, uh, like John the Baptist had done. And he hears about the reports of the Pharisees, hearing about his popularity, and he heads up north to Galilee. That's verses 1 through 3. And it says in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. You notice this word occurs again in verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. Samaria, this is a very uh, important part of this story, as we saw. That's one of the responses of this woman in verse 9. She, she's described as a, a, a woman of Samaria. She even calls herself a woman of Samaria. Uh, why is that important? Well, Samaria uh, is the region north of, uh, so kind of go back in Israel's history, when it used to be a united nation under uh, Saul and, and David, and Solomon, it extended all the way north up into Galilee and all the way down into the Judean wilderness in the south. Um, but after Solomon, the kingdom splits into, and you remember that from Israel's history, the northern uh, portion of Israel is conquered by the Assyrians. And we saw this in our Amos series because Amos had a lot of, uh, to speak about that impending and coming judgment. Um, the southern kingdom wasn't destroyed or conquered uh, until the Babylonians much later, about a hundred and so years later. But when the Assyrians had conquered the northern portion of Israel, they had, which was a common practice in those days, they would take um, their own citizens and relocate them into that land, and then they would take some of the citizens from the conquered land and then take them back home. You remember this, this kind of happened with Daniel and some of the leading persons of the Jews during the Babylonian exile, they were taken back. Uh, but the other half of that practice was to, to, to take some of their people down into that area and to try to assimilate uh, the people of that conquered area. This was kind of a, a stopgap measure to prevent any kind of uprising from, from happening. And so that apparently is what has happened with this mixture of, a, of, a, of Assyrian Gentiles with Jews who lived in the northern kingdom at the time. And so this group known as Samaritans in this region of Samaria was a, a racially mixed group and were hated by the Jews in the south because they were kind of the picture of uh, emerging of uh, assimilation with the, with the unclean Gentiles. That figure is very uh, important in this story. They're in the town that's called Sychar here in the New Testament. The modern day town is uh, uh, Nablus. And the Old Testament name for this same city was, is Shechem. And so it occurs, you can see the description of the city that is spoken of here with, um, with Jacob and Joseph. In Genesis chapter 12, you see Abraham, he builds an altar there in Genesis 12. And then Jacob and Joseph uh, is described in Genesis 33. And so Jesus is here in this town. He doesn't go around Samaria like is, was typically done by Jews so that they could avoid passing through this area of a very hated group of people. Instead, Jesus and his disciples walk right through it and they park at 
this town in Sikar. He sends his disciples into town to go and buy food, and he sits here by the well. And then notice it says it was the, about the sixth hour. Or some translations will say it was about noon, uh, because that would be the Jewish reckoning of the day. The sixth hour would be the sixth hour from basically sunrise, from 6 a.m. And so this would be noon. That's very important because that would be the hottest time of the day. Jesus is weary from his travels. It would also be a time of the day that people didn't typically, the women of the city didn't go to the well to draw water. They would usually do that in the morning, first thing, or they would do it in the evening at dusk, but they didn't do it at the hottest time of the day. And so that's the setting here. Now notice the dialogue. And then we'll get some observations and some lessons here through the interaction of Jesus with this woman at the well. Notice Jesus begins with the request as this woman shows up in verse 7, a woman from Samaria. Okay, so this um, hated racially mixed group, or at least hated by the Jews, came to draw water. She's coming to draw water at noon at a time when you typically don't. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city. Now, the woman responds to this request, perhaps a little bit shocked. It says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, she was able to identify, she is able to identify Jesus as a Jew right away, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. Here, it's already reflecting the tension the racial tensions between uh, Jew and Samaritans, and also the little interaction here between a, a man, uh, perhaps a, maybe it was even obvious he was a rabbi, uh, a, a man and a woman. And then John gives us the little description here, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, no dealings doesn't mean no dealings at all, like they couldn't do business transactions. The disciples just went in town to buy some food. What it means here is that it's not association, no, no fellowship. And that even in some, um, some commentaries would speak about how Jews wouldn't be, even at this time, wouldn't even use the utensils of Samaritans. So sharing a bucket for water would probably be crossing some boundaries here. And this is what she's pointing out. So Jesus requests this drink. She has this question, incredulous about why he would even ask her for this. And Jesus says this amazing thing in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and, and fill in the blanks here, you would have asked him for a drink and he would have given you living water. Notice here the first lesson, the compassion of Jesus to be so willing to give the gift of life to sinners. Jesus flips this around on her. He'd asked her for a drink, and, and I would suggest he's even, uh, he's even setting up and knowing that this kind of, this sort of dialogue is going to shake down this way by asking her for a drink. And he says, you know, if you really knew who I was, you'd be asking me. And 
not only would you ask me, I would be more than willing to give you water, but not water from this well, as we're going to see. I would be willing to give you living water. So the compassion of Jesus to be so willing to give a gift of not just water, but life to a sinner. Because as we will see, he knows who she is and he knows her past. J.C. Ryle says this, it's a great quote, and I couldn't uh, pass up sharing it with all of you today. J.C. Ryle says, The infinite willingness of Christ to receive sinners is a golden truth which ought to be treasured up in our hearts and diligently impressed on others. And it says, The Lord Jesus is far more ready to hear than we are to pray. And far more ready to give favors than we are to ask of him. All day long, he stretches out his hands to the disobedient and gainsaying. He has thoughts of pity and compassion toward the vilest of sinners, even when they have no thoughts of him. He stands waiting to bestow mercy and grace on the worst and most unworthy if they will only cry out to him. The amazing compassion of Jesus to be so willing to give life to here. If only you knew who I was, you'd be asking me, and I assure you, I would give you more. I would give you living water. So the conversation continues. The woman says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. So she's a little, um, still perhaps a little confused at what Jesus was getting at, this living water. Jesus here is talking about something much more profound. Perhaps she's thinking of living water, maybe like water that comes from a spring as opposed to a well. And so she says, are you, are you greater than our father Jacob? And the true answer is, I couldn't help but think of this, is that Jesus is biting his lip here saying, yeah, I am. <laughs> I am greater than Jacob. But Jesus, he holds his tongue here. And he waits and he steady, builds this conversation. She's like, are you greater than Jacob that you would do these things? And then notice what Jesus says in verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water, referring to the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give in him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here Jesus is giving us our second lesson. Jesus is revealing to us our deepest spiritual thirst. And here water and thirst is used as a metaphor for spiritual longing. Jesus is revealing and tapping into the, the true spiritual longing that they have. And he connects it with this image of, of water. And the contrast here, notice that there's a difference between this well water and spring water. Um, we mentioned earlier about um, 
Debbie's mother getting a chance to go to Israel. I, uh, when I read passages like this, I think of my time in Israel when, uh, and I was in this nearby area. This is Palestinian controlled territory now, so we didn't go here uh, into this city, but we were in the closest we could possibly get. And it's dry and it's hot. And we have to carry around um, like liters and liters of water with us wherever we went. And it's, there's no way of keeping it refrigerated. So we're drinking like lukewarm water. You just had to get used to that kind of thing. Um, and uh, there's a big contrast between uh, seeing like well water, which is usually a, a hole dug in the ground at a geographically low spot in uh, a hilly region. So all the water would kind of run down on what little rain they would get, and then it would come down to the lowest spot and then just collect. And all the sediment would go to the bottom, and then you'd have water that would be at uh, would you know be on the top and you would draw that water out and it would be dirty and it would be lukewarm and not refreshing and Jesus is contrasting that kind of water with spring water which we had an opportunity to see in Israel which is like clear and fresh and cold water like bubbling up out of the ground how many of you when you were playing in your backyard as a kid in the summer I, we used to play wiffle ball games in my backyard for hours on end. We'd play soccer in our backyard for hour, hours on end. And we'd finally take a break. We'd be thirsty and we'd go and open up the hose, right? How many of you drank from the garden hose? Like we're all like should be impervious to all sorts of diseases or whatever, um, drinking from the garden hose. And if you waited, you were the last one in line. How cold it was. Do you remember that? Jesus is likening that here. He's like, this would, it's not, not just well water. You'd be getting spring water, but it's not just spring water. It's spring water that turns into eternal, like wells up into eternal life for you. And here he's tapping in to her desire for her, her deep spiritual thirst, something that she wants, but that only God himself, God alone himself can give. And so the woman says this in verse 15, she says to him, sir, give me this water, this spring water that you speak of. And then it's interesting. She says, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. There's a couple of ways we can understand what she's saying here. Um, you know, is, is she being sincere here, but still thinking in terms of actual water? Like, sure, I would love some cold, fresh spring water. Or is she kind of joking? Yeah, sure, give me some of this spring water. Is she misunderstanding the metaphor? Is she being sarcastic? Or is she being very sincere? And is she thinking more than just so that she wouldn't have to drink water again? Notice what she says closely. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty, as Jesus said, or have to come here to draw water. Maybe what she's saying is maybe I would love to not to come here at noon in the middle of the day ever again. Maybe some of the, the shame that Jesus is going to unpack here in a moment. Of having to go and draw water at that time of the day. And that she would really like 
so maybe she's still thinking of just an earthly metaphor. Maybe she's like, yeah, I would really like to not have to do this anymore. Either way, Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. Because she says, sure, give me this water. And he says to her, seemingly to change the subject, verse 16, go call your husband and come here. That's important to know here. The, the Greek word for husband is, is man, like a male. Not man, like as in anthropology, like mankind. But like a male man. Not a male man, a male human person. Okay? And... Uh, but it's also the word for husband. So you have to see the context, you know, a man or husband here. So it's a little ambiguous. And so the woman responds in verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And then Jesus does an amazing thing here. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands or men slash men. You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So what you have said is true. Imagine the piercing nature of what Jesus has just said. And this is our third lesson here. Jesus knows our hearts and our deepest need. Jesus knows that she's a sinner. And he's known this the whole time. From the very beginning of the conversation. And it's not just that Jesus is an astute observer. You know, just getting it from the situation. I'm sure he could have deduced that from where they were at the well in the middle of the day, at the hottest time of the day. Could be some of that. But it could be that he's Jesus. And that he just knows. And he's known it all along. And he's been engaging in this conversation and using this, the elements of a situation to drive, to get to what her real need is. And for her to get to an awareness of what her real need is. Jesus knows what our, our deepest needs are. But then it also points to uh, this other truth. Jesus shows the absolute necessity of conviction of sin in genuine conversion. Jesus shows the absolute necessity of conviction of sin in genuine conversion. It's a pretty bold thing that Jesus has done here by calling out her sin. First in his question, well, go get your husband. I don't have one. You're right. By calling out her sin first in his question and then by revealing that he, he truly knows and understands the true depth of her moral disarray. Again, the words of J.C. Ryle. Until men and women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need, no real good is ever done to their souls. Never does a soul value the gospel medicine 
until it feels its disease. Never does a man see any beauty in Christ as Savior until he discovers that he is himself a lost and ruined sinner. Ignorance of sin is invariably attended by neglect of Christ. Until women are brought to feel their sinfulness and need, no real good is ever done to their souls. This Jesus is, understands here, and this is where he's trying to lead this unnamed Samaritan woman. Now to this, the woman says in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now I can't tell if she's just trying to change, change the topic a little bit, or if it really is a, an extension of the, the logic of where this conversation is going. But it seems like she's, she, she recognizes that Jesus is a prophet, but then goes to talk about the differences religiously between the Samaritans and the Jews. Notice verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Again, back to the distinction between Jews and Samaritans. When the Samaritans had mingled with the Assyrians, the Assyrian Gentile people, and um, a wedge had really been drawn between Jews in Jerusalem and the south and the ones up north, it got so much that the, uh, the ones in the north actually built their own temple and had their own forms of worship up there. And as a matter of fact, they even had their own Pentateuch, the first five books of their Moses. So they took like the first five books of the Bible and then they kind of uh, had some uh, different variations in it. And then that was their scripture. So no prophets, no Psalms, no writings, just those things. And as a matter of fact, uh, some of their worship practices there, they still do a day of atonement today uh, on Mount Gerizim, just right, right there on the mountain, right next to the city of Nablus. If you Google like Samaritan Day of Atonement, you will be able to see uh, they still do their animal sacrifices there, even to this day. And so this is the backdrop behind what she's saying here uh, in verse 20. We, the Samaritans, ancestors, we worship on this mountain, and she's probably pointing to Mount Gerizim, the one right that they're at the base of. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, notice what Jesus says in response here. He's going, to get, uh, he's going to reveal something about true and genuine worship. And notice he doesn't just kind of wipe away all distinctions between Samaritans and Jews. He's like, no, 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 no. The, the Jews have it right. The Jews have it right. But then he, he now introduces, I think, a transition here from the old covenant to the new covenant. Notice what he says. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Again, Jesus had no problems with speaking the truth and saying, you know, your forms of worship are wrong. Uh, you know, you, what you're engaging in is sinful. You worship what you do not know. We, speaking of the Jews, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He wants to drive home. No, you, you have to understand the Messiah is not coming from your system. The Messiah is coming from the Jewish system. Salvation will come from the Jews. So Jesus is like driving home. He's establishing 
no, you're wrong and the Jews are right. But notice what he says. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So this gets to our last little piece of lesson here. That Jesus reveals what true acceptable worship is to God. And that is a genuine and changed heart. It's spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Not in forms of worship. Not in religiosity. True worship comes from a genuine changed heart. And even though Jesus is going to still affirm that the old covenant order that was still being practiced in Jerusalem at that time is still the place from which the Messiah is going to come. He's not a pluralist. He's not saying, hey, all religions are the same. No, he's going to say, uh, no, that's the, that was the old covenant system that is now being brought to an end. And now the new covenant is here. The new covenant is coming. And as he says, he goes, it's, it's coming, but it's and has come. The hour's coming, and is now here, he says, where worship will be in spirit and truth, in worship of Jesus Christ, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, no matter where you come from. Which drives home the, um, what Jesus is saying here is really illustrating the distinction between uh, the polar opposites of Nicodemus on one side and this Samaritan woman on the other. It's the same for both. Salvation is achieved the same way for both. In a way, this is building off of the conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, you must be born again by the Spirit of God. It has to be a change of heart that comes from a conviction of sin and then leads to conversion to the Savior. What was true for Nicodemus is also true for this woman. All worship absent that is useless. It's literally neither here nor there. Because that's what Jesus is saying. It's neither here. It'll be neither here nor there. But those who are born again, who, have, who will... Uh, now have genuine worship that is acceptable to God through the Spirit and through truth. And here's the thing. God grants what God requires. He gives what he commands here. The woman responds to this by saying, I know, because it seems, again, you'd have to follow what Jesus is saying about Spirit and truth and about Salvation coming from the Jews, this is a reference here to the Messiah, the one who's coming. And she acknowledges this in verse 25. The woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus says, one of the most clearest statements of his divinity and his identity as the Messiah is right here in this verse. I who speak to you am he. That Messiah, I'm him. 
And as you acknowledge, when he comes, he's going to explain all of this I just did to you. Jesus reveals his own identity to her. So notice the compassion of Jesus, so willing to give gift of life to sinners. And then notice how he reveals himself progressively to the woman, first by uh, revealing and unpacking for her her deepest spiritual need, and then shows the absolute necessity to be aware of her conviction of her sins before she could uh, be converted to her Savior. And then shows her what true and genuine worship is, and it's coming. The, under, the, the subtext behind all of this is through faith in me, through faith in who I am. The outcome is explained a little bit later in this, this uh, chapter, but I, I think it would be helpful to see. Uh, um, we didn't get this as part of our reading, but uh, to see there's, there's two outcomes that happen. One is when the disciples return, Jesus has some very specific things to teach them and will teach us, and we're going to, Lord willing, capture that next week. But let's look at the outcome of Jesus' conversation with this woman. In verses 28 through 30, and then also 39 through 42. So the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people. Now, left her jar there. Okay, it's the middle of the day. She's there to gather water. She's getting dirty well water from the thing, and she's not just gotten spring water. She's gotten springs of living water that well up to eternal life, Jesus said. What greater picture that, that she has received that than the fact that she leaves her bucket there? She left her jar, went away to town, and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Apparently, she has a reputation everybody in the town would have known. And now she comes to just acknowledge to everybody in the town what everybody probably already knew. She's confessing to all of them. And I came to, I came to this man and he told me all that I ever did. And she goes, can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? And they went out to the town to meet him. And then skip down to verse 39. So many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, quote, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to this woman, perhaps this outcast, despised, sinful woman, who's forced in her shame to come in the middle of the day to get water, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen? This wonderful story about this Samaritan woman unpacks for us so much about the grace of God and his kindness and his mercy to sinners, whom he knows. And then when people get a, a taste of this Savior, and understand this, this level of grace that we could, this shame that we wish would go away is gone that we can now tell to other people, this is what Jesus has done for me. 
and that results in other people having their shame exposed and brought to, to Jesus and say, this is what Jesus has done for me. This indeed is the Savior of the world. That's the lesson for today. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, our merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus and we thank you for this woman. This real person in history who had the, the wonderful blessing of having seen her Savior face to face even before she knew who he was. That we thank you for the love that Jesus demonstrates here. A love that helps lost people to become aware of what their need is. A love that's not afraid to speak the truth about the real state of their condition with God. And yet offers this gift of life to all who would receive. God, thank you for that, that lesson and that reminder this morning. And may all of us see ourselves in, in this woman. That we, we come to know even deeper and in increasing measure who, who Jesus really is. And may we rejoice that in coming to know him, we have come to know the Savior of the world. God, help us to, like this woman, go back changed. Help us, like this woman, to go and share with others of all that you have done for us. And we pray this. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen. Brothers and sisters, will you stand for our closing benediction? And as always, if, if anyone has any, uh, any things that they would like to make aware uh, for, to me for prayer, um, or if you have any questions, um, feel free to come up afterward. I'd love to talk with you. Um, also a reminder that the offering box is out there. There's books on the table. Um, uh, feel free to, uh, to take any of those. Not the offering box. Leave that here. <laughs> take, take, the, take the books. Just to clear that up. All right, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship that we have through your Holy Spirit will be with you. 